Our scripture is in chapter 1 of Hebrews today, and I will have you stand with me in honor of God's word as we read. The text actually goes down to chapter, or to chapter 2, verse 4, but we're going to be staying in chapter 1 for our reading right now. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son and today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let's let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? May God add rich blessing to the reading of his word. Have a seat. So the book of Hebrews is written to particularly to Jew to Jews obviously by uh, nature of the title Hebrews, um, and it's written uh, to the Jewish people. It would appear largely to Jewish Christians, actually. So uh, this is not an, an evangelistic book, by and large, as much as it is an apologetic book where it's defending and explaining. And you'll notice that even though it's a letter, it looks almost more like a sermon or a doctrinal statement than it does like a normal letter. We don't know who wrote the book necessarily. Uh, there's been a number of different uh, people put out there as possibilities. I guess probably still if there was one leading possibility, it would still probably be Paul, but there's just no good reason uh, for us to understand who uh, the, the author is. And that's okay. We don't need to know. Clearly, if we did, God would let us know, right? So, uh, I, but this book is written to the Jews. Now, I want you to think for a second about the Jews in in the first century. The Jews were an underappreciated minority in the land in general. 
Okay, the Jews were not a beloved people group by and large. And in the midst of that, they were able to suffer, so to speak, with a level of pride. And the reason is because they had this incredible religious and national heritage. You know, I mean, when you think about the Jews, they could look all the way back and point to Abraham. And they could say, we're the people of God. And of course people hate us because we're the people of God. You know what I mean? And you could almost be defined by people's hatred, taking pride in the fact that you're still the people of God. And to a degree, this happens uh, with Christians still today, where if we're hated, well, if we're hated for what it is that God, you know, has for us, well, that's, there's, there's some measure of, I don't know if pride's the right word, but identity that's put in that. This is what happens, though, is for the Jewish Christians of the day, something changes. I mean, clearly, as Jesus comes and they begin to identify with Jesus, the Jewish faith, by and large, either wants to control those Jewish Christians and, and have them submit to something that they don't believe in, or they want to ostracize those Jewish Christians. And so picture yourself now as one of these Jewish Christians, where you're used to being identified as the people of God, and you have this national heritage, this religious heritage that kind of holds you up, but now you're even more underappreciated as a minority, and you're being isolated from your heritage. So now what do you have to stand on? You know, it's a very difficult spot. We went, when I was in Israel, um, I went to, into Bethlehem, which is Palestinian-controlled uh, city. And while we were there, there was a Christian. Uh, he was a Palestinian Christian who let us talk about a, a, an identity struggle. You know, he's hated by the Jews because he's Palestinian He's hated by the Palestinians because he's a Christian. He lives in the midst of the war between the Palestinians and the Jews, and yet he identifies himself as a follower of Jesus who was a Jew and worships the God who both the Muslims and the Jews originally claim as their God, Yahweh. You know, and here he is in the midst of all of that, catching fire from every direction. And what the, he said, basically what it is to be a Palestinian Christian is like when anyone's angry, you're just the easy person to go kick. That's what that is, because no one cares. Jewish Christians of the time, very similar situation in, in first century. I mean, and you find it. They're the scapegoat. They're the easy targets. They're all of that. And when you came from such a, a rich national and religious heritage, it would be really difficult to just let that go. Now, some of you have experienced um, things like this in your life, a little bit of uh, separation possibly. Maybe you came from a very, I, I know um, for uh, some people have come from like a Roman Catholic background where it's a big part of the family. Family, you know how uh, when you have a, a real thick religious system, that's part of your culture, that's not just a faith heritage, that's a family heritage. And so your family identifies itself around that faith. And if someone has an experience with the Lord and comes to know the Lord in that environment, and because of that begins to identify with a group of people that's not of that exact same denomination or that heritage, the family can really react. 
you know, and the family can say like, what are you doing? That's, that's not us anymore. Who do you think you are? You know, and there, there's a real tension that can happen in that place. And so if you're trying to experience God and walk further in your faith, but that causes tension in your family, there's a little bit, and, and it could just be that you came from a, a, a pretty chill, uh, minorly religious family, but then you became like a Jesus freak or something, you know, and you're that person now and your family's like, you are so weird. Why are you doing that? You know, and or it could be that you came from a real fundamentalist background where, you know, you, you knew the Bible and you knew the right thing to do and all of that. But then you started to encounter life, living, dynamic relationship with God and everything didn't fit in the black and white boxes. But you started to move with God and everyone's like, dude, you're into weird stuff now. Like, do you believe in the Holy Spirit like that? Or you believe in like the movement of God? God in that interact, you know, whatever it is, we can take our social, our social environments can be very damaged as we step further into a relationship with God. Now, what, this is the situation that that puts us in when, when we get there is that initially, usually there's enough fire in our relationship with God and enough joy found in our relationship with God that it's kind of worth it. You know, where it's like, it's tough and it's really brutal. But if only my family or my friends knew what this was like and we try to invite them into it, which oftentimes can make the whole scene a little bit worse because they're like, get off of me. What are you doing? Now you're turning into one of those people, you know, and all of that can happen. But there's that fire, that joy of the relationship with God. And if there's other brothers and sisters who we're nurturing that with, we can potentially find another social group that's really, you know, thriving and all of that. But then there's this danger, and you know the danger. The danger is that in time, the fire burns a little less. And that the community that we're a part of, we're not stoking the fire with one another. And that the initial burst of glory that we experience with God begins to diminish a little bit. And somewhere, as, as we're in the afterglow, and we haven't nurtured the flame, or we go through the desert, or whatever it is, it's easy at that point to look back and say, is it all worth it? Because they still are doing their thing and they're still having fun this way or they still have the family identity and here I am now a little ostracized and things have changed. And that happens to many, many people. It's happened to many people at Parker Ford. It's happened to uh, people all throughout history. For the Jews, uh, for the Jewish first century Christians and second century Christians, I think this happened in a gigantic sort of way. And so there's this thing that happens, of course, where the Judaizers come in and the Judaizers are those who begin to teach in ways that uh, kind of try to add some of the Jewish faith, uh, Jewish uh, old covenant back in to uh, the relationship with Christ. And then there's just flat out the, the doubts and the questions that Jewish Christians are going to have about like, how does this all fit? They're receiving all this accusation from the old crew and they're sitting there trying to deal with it. So the overarching purpose of Hebrews is this. The overarching purpose is to tell those Jewish Christians, is to say, listen, and listen carefully. Jesus is not only the fulfillment of every prophecy and every image that the entire Jewish faith pointed toward, but he fills it up and supersedes and overflows far above and beyond anything that that faith had seen or understood. And he will fill it all up and bubble over and overflow. There is no going back to a faith that doesn't entail the person and the presence of Jesus the Christ. Going back there 
is empty because all of that pointed to him. Now, what it's not doing is diminishing the Jewish faith. It's not trying to say that's unimportant. As a matter of fact, it's trying to validate that Jewish faith and say it's that Jewish faith that points to Jesus. Jesus himself was a Jew practicing Jewish faith, but he's the fulfillment of it, and he's the explosion up over top of it. But the point of Hebrews is to tell these people, say, don't think about looking back so much. You know, don't, don't let your mind go there other than to say all the things that we were taught are somehow fulfilled in this man, Jesus. And that's why, you know, it talks all about the prophecies that were given. And it says the angels came because every time the whole reason it's talking about Jesus being greater than the angels in this text is because how did God communicate in the Old Testament? Two ways. And angels. All the time, he spoke through the angels. Oftentimes, the angels to the prophets and then the prophets to the people. But the big communications were when he manifested supernaturally in the Old Testament, it was through these angels. And then he would speak profoundly through the prophets. And he says, there were all the prophets. And many times, in many ways, he spoke through all these prophets. But then there's his son. And his son is even greater than the angels because the prophets are the humans who hear from God and speak. But then there's the angels who speak directly on behalf of God. And then he says, but this guy who came, he's better than all the prophets and he's better than all the angels. And so all the revelations you had before, everything that your little church life was built on before pales in comparison to what is available to you now in the very presence of Jesus. Jesus, it's awesome. Anybody see the, uh, what do they call it, the triple... Play uh, connection or something like that. The uh, the dance of the planets Friday night, the moon. Anybody see that? It was awesome. It was so cool. We were on the way to take the boys to their basketball game, and there's a crescent moon. We didn't even know it was supposed to happen. We were just driving over to their basketball game, and Jen's like, "Look at the moon!" And we look out, and it's this gorgeous crescent moon. The crescent's on the bottom of the moon, uh, as far as where it was, but you could so clearly see the rest of the moon, very, very clearly, because the sun was reflecting off the earth and onto the moon, so it was illuminating the entire moon, and then there was just the crescent that was catching the direct sun from the moon, uh, light from the sun, and so uh, it was it was awesome, like really, really cool, big moon, see the whole thing, and then this sliver of real bright light right next to it, I mean like in the sky, it was like that close to it, was Venus, just like Boom, standing out. And then up above it, back behind it, was Mars. And, uh, and you could see Mars just kind of flickering back there a little bit. You know, it has that like orange and blue kind of thing in your eye. And, and it was like a triangle. And so they, they called it the triple play convergence, I think, or the dance of the planets. And uh, so we're sitting there looking at this thing and just, oh, wow, that's so cool. And um, you, you should go online and look at the pictures of it. It's really gorgeous. So I want you to picture with me being in a world where it's always nighttime. Being in our world, but it's always nighttime. Now, it might be clear skies, and you might see all the beauty of the stars. There's enough moonlight to kind of see the shadows of our world, so you're not constantly running into things. It's not pitch black, but it's just the, the, the light from outside, you know. And, and you're kind of walking around, and the trees, you don't know what a tree is. 
you know, you were raised in this world, and, and a tree is just those kind of like gnarly, shadowy things that are kind of weird, you know? And the grass feels prickery. Yeah, you don't s- see any, and we're assuming still that all those things are growing, even though the light of the sun isn't on them. Um, and, but the world is all the same without the sun being there, okay? And we're, but we're in the darkness, and, and you can't see what's going on, and you hear a little rustling behind you, and you turn to look, but you never quite see the animals. You just hear them, you know, and then one day, and of course the beauty, the beauty is still what you can see the most in the dark, which is the light. So all the beauty is in the heavens, you know, all the beauty is the stars. And uh, I, there's this one song um, that I love, uh, life, I forget exactly how it goes. Um, there were so many fewer questions when stars were still just the holes to heaven. And uh, you're probably picturing this in our in our world without the sun. You look up and you're just seeing these lights, and you're saying, "What's up above that? That all the light? Where is that coming from?" You know. And then this one day, after we'd lived that way, a big chunk of our life, all of a sudden, one morning we wake up, and the sun starts to come up. Hmm. I had walked out of my house, however many times, and all I saw was these shadows and. When I was dealing with people, I didn't see the color really in their face. And, uh, you know, I know the tone of their voice very well, but I can't see them extremely well. And when it comes up, it's an autumn day, and the leaves are in full color, and there's the long shadows from the golden sun, and the grass is brilliant and green, and the sky is blue with those billowy white clouds that are kind of floating through. The noise as you hear, you turn and look and you see a squirrel running. Imagine seeing it for the first time. Incredible moment. And yet something else is missing now. What's missing? The thing that used to be so beautiful to me. What was it? The stars in the sky. I can't see them. Because of the light of the sun, the star is outshining everything else. And all of a sudden, I can see beauty all around me, but the beauty that I saw before has changed. It's there. It hasn't moved. It hasn't gone anywhere. But the light that emerged outshines all the other light. And this is what happens to the Jewish faith when Jesus comes. There was pictures. There was images. There was perspective. There were shadows all around me. I got kind of a vague idea of what was going on, and I tried to live my life the best I could in the dim lit uh, environment in which I am. But then Jesus comes, and when He comes, He just brings light to everything. And all of a sudden, what looked like just a shadowy figure and a nice voice becomes my beautiful wife. And before, what was just that rustling in the leaves becomes the vitality of God's creation. And all of a sudden, my life, my existence, tends to make a whole lot more sense in light of those stars that were out there. Because I can see what's real and what's present right here. And this is what Jesus does, and this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say to those who had experienced the Jewish faith. He says, anything you had experienced in your religion before, anything you had known of your identity before, it's time for you to leave that, not like it's useless, but to understand that it pales, pales in comparison to the value of Jesus. That there's nothing more important. Don't think at all about turning back. 
I think he kind of calls the, you know, the Jewish faith was trying to ostracize the Christians at the time and say, distance themselves. And again, either control them or distance from them. And I think the writer of Hebrews is doing something here where he's kind of calling for a DNA test. (laughs) He's saying, "Uh, this is your son. You know, Jesus is born out of this. And what's more is, he's the fulfillment of what all this said. And what's more is, he's the God who you've claimed to worship for all this time. And he's saying, don't pull away and don't let them tell you that you are pushed away. Don't leave your heritage and pretend it's not yours anymore. This is your heritage and built on top of that is the crown jewel, the presence of the living God, the one who you've worshipped has come to be with you. And all the prophets and all the angels proclaiming and everything, nothing compared to this one who you now follow. And he's encouraging them with these words. uh, There's this understanding that we get here and he says the prophets spoke in many ways and in in different ways and uh, throughout different times and you get the picture that there's this kind of unclear scattered communication with the prophets where there's little images here and specifics here but it doesn't all converge and make sense until Jesus comes we were the other day Jen and I were having our time in the in the morning with the Lord and Jen said this cool thing we're right now during this time of consecration during Lent we're pulling back, I think I said this last week, we're pulling back from all the other reading we're doing and we're just reading Gospels right now. And so we were in, in Matthew and Jen was mentioned something that was pretty cool. She was like, you know, if the prophet said that uh, he was coming up out of Egypt and if the prophet said he was coming out of Bethlehem and if the prophets talked about what was gonna, he was going to be called a Nazarene, how in the world is that going to make sense to everyone who's reading the, the prophecies? They're like, that's so confusing. These prophecies don't converge until you see the story. And until Christ comes, and then all of a sudden it all makes sense. Have you ever heard the, um, the phrase, there's the facts, but then there's the story? Super important phrase, if you ask me. And what that usually is, is about is that when you hear something about someone, you hear this fact, and you hear this fact, and you hear this fact, it's pretty easy to write a story in your mind about how those facts go together. That's called judging someone, right, inappropriately, is when we write the story of the facts that we've heard. But lots of times the story might be very different than the one I'm writing in my head, the, the real story. And when we're looking at the prophets, what's happening is, is there's these facts that they put out there, but the story's not written. But Jesus is the fulfillment by being the story. He's present and he's alive. You know, what is it that the prophets actually offered us? What do we look for in the prophets? I'm just going to ask us this. What, what do prophets stand for? What is it that they do? Anyone? Yeah, okay. Particularly God's words. They speak to us. Why would we want to know the words of God? Okay, so to know his plans for sure. So big thing is to know his plans. And what else? Why do I want to know his plans? Okay, I want to be directed. I want to know what his plan is. I want to be directed within that plan. Why? Why do I want those things? Okay, so I also want presence with him. So I want the prophets to reveal who he is, what his plan is, and how I can walk in it. And then, of course, what he says is, uh, he just showed up. (laughs) 
He just showed up. So much better is that he just showed up. And he's here with us. And he, you can ask him about his plans. And he can direct you. But more than that, he'll just relate to you. And it's so much better than that old thing where we're trying to piece together all the, the pieces. Sometimes in our faith, I don't know about you, sometimes in the faith for me, I still act like it's just a faith of the prophets. Where I'm trying to get a little piece here and a little piece there, and I'm trying to use my brain to piece it all together. Instead of allowing my heart to learn to know the presence of God and be guided moment by moment, we are told that he will lead us and that his voice will guide us, that he's given us this guide, this comforter, this ambassador, this one who will walk me through life that lives within me. But oftentimes, I know for me, faith can still look a lot like the prophet kind of faith, where I'm taking this thought and that thought and what I heard over here and this thought and trying to piece it together to figure out what would you do with my life instead of living as if Jesus is actually alive and here with me and guiding me. And that takes a whole nother way of living, of learning to hear and move in the presence of God, which is why we had that whole voice series a little while ago. You know, um, imagine in this cold weather right now, one of your friends comes back from a cruise or a vacation down in the Caribbean. Anyone go away so far this winter to somewhere warm? Leona did. Yeah, Leona, see, he knows. Yeah, Leona did. That woman. <laughs> Anybody else go anywhere warm? No one else went anywhere warm. All right. Imagine your friend telling you right now in the middle of this about that beach that they sat on. Never wore anything but shorts and a t-shirt the whole time. The mango juice was fresh. Sunlight was warm. Sounds good, right? There's part of us that's starting to feel good just listening to it. There's another part that wants to wring their neck. <laughs> in the middle of that, imagine this. Imagine you close your eyes and you're picturing it as they speak of it. And as they're speaking of it and you have your eyes closed, you actually hear the gull above you and you hear the waves lapping up onto the beach and you start to feel warmth on your skin and you open up your eyes and there you are sitting on that beach. This is in essence, again, what he's saying. Why live based in the old prophets? Why live based in the shadows and the dreams? Why live just hearing about Jesus and, and hearing the stories about him and hearing just words from him that direct you when you can engage in the presence of him? He's here. He came himself. Moms, so be, uh, there's a, a few of you still in that stage where you're uh, trying to figure out what to do with these little ones. But imagine... Um, <clears throat> trying to take these children and figuring out how to raise them. And there's this book that you've been hearing about all the time that's like written by some super mom. And it has like all the principles for learning how to help your kids be raised appropriately. And you're reading the book and you're like, man, these are really good principles. But every time you try to figure out how to apply those principles, it doesn't seem, you can't quite seem to get it all to go. And you're like, this is a lot harder than what, I, what it sounds like from the book. And then there's a knock at the door. You go to the door and you open it up. And here's the author of the book. And she said, look, I want to live with you for a month. And I want to walk you through this. 
And at the end of that month, how much more did I learn about parenting in that month than I did just by reading her book? The book's great. Because after I've learned all that stuff, I can go back and read the book and realize, oh, that's what she was talking about. I know how to do it now, but the book explains what that was when she told me to do this or when she showed me with my kid. You're saying it this way, but you have to say it that way. And I'm like, oh, and all of a sudden those principles that were in the book start to come to life. Jesus, as opposed to the prophets, it comes to life. The reason we read the Gospels is that he is the image, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. All the other stuff that talked about God, Jesus is God. He shows God. He shows us exactly the way it's supposed to look, and he walks with us. And it's an amazing thing, but it doesn't just stop there. The writer of Hebrews doesn't just stop there. He takes us a a little bit further. He takes us past just the prophets, and instead he takes us all the way back to the beginning of creation. And he says, as a matter of fact, this one who just came to you, it was created, the, the whole thing was created by him. And as a matter of fact, it's his word that still holds it together right now. He's the only thing holding it all together. He's the one who created it, and he's the one who's holding it together. If there was a manual written about life, you know on every manual, you hope that when it's telling you how to put something together, there's a picture of what it should look like at the end. You ever tried putting a puzzle together when you have no idea what the picture is? That's tough, you know? Or or try to put something together when you don't have a picture of it. Um, Jesus is the picture of what we're supposed to look like. Okay, as a human, when we look at him, he is the picture. Because we were created in the image of God, he's the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. He's what we're supposed to look like. But more than that, he not only wrote the book on it, he was the creator and the designer, and so we have him with us. But more than that, much more than all of that, this is the most important part, is our whole design, our whole creation, was made for one purpose. To know him. We reveal his nature when we delight in his presence. See, he created us to love him. And what happens is, is when he comes in the flesh, he not only comes to give us the manual and show us how it works. He comes not only to say, I designed you and I can help you get there. He comes not only to show us what it looks like. He comes to be the one we were designed to engage And he says, I'm no longer hiding behind the shadows. I'm here with you. There is no veil between us. And so he makes this incredible way. And this is what happens now at the end. It's basically, you know, we can't just simply learn about our design by the words that are on the paper or about our purpose by someone's teachings. Our identity can't be discovered just through our personality tests or or through our genealogies. And God can't be understood just by our ethics or by our spiritual practices. This is a living, dynamic relationship. And so he comes in the flesh so we can relate to him. The story comes alive and we can see what it looks like. And then in the spirit, he dwells among us and within us and gives us the ability to personally relate to him. He does this, of course, through his death on the cross, which is what he names here. He says in uh, verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
So here it is, the one who we were designed to love, the one who created us, the one who is the model of what we're supposed to be. He is perfected through suffering himself as he gives himself entirely, showing us what love is all about by sacrificing himself on our behalf so that there is absolutely nothing, nothing at all that we need to do but trust him. That's it. He's done it all. He has laid it all down and he can ask for one thing, for us to trust him. That trust, right here, chapter 2, we need to read the first four verses. This is the end of it all, of today's text. Therefore, given the fact that he is greater than all, that he is the model, that he's the one we're to engage, that he's the creator and he's our designer and, all, and that he has made a way for us to enter into our, our glorious design. Therefore, verse 2, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. This is a different story than many will teach and many will speak. Not that we need to find new intricacies. Not that we need to find new revelation and all sorts of incredible new things that God would speak. But we need to pay more attention to what it is that's been spoken to us in the person of Jesus. See, Jesus is the word that is alive, and Jesus is the word that is present. And he has revealed himself through the stories of the Gospels, but he reveals himself internally with us. And we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That Gospel that leads us to salvation today is something that we have to be attentive to. And I don't know about you, but I have the ability to, uh, you know, being a kid, particularly a kid who was raised in the faith um, and who has been in Sunday school for many, many years and who has been in Bible college and all of that, it's very easy to take the gospel for granted and to assume that I am living a gospel life, to assume that I'm living the grace of God right now. And yet what I find is, is that many, many, many times in my life, if I was truly inhabiting the truth of the gospel, my life would look different. The pursuit of my life, this very, very basic truth of the gospel, that Jesus, God himself, has fulfilled every prophecy that was spoken, that he has made a way where there was no way, that all my joy, all my fulfillment, everything can be discovered in him. If I truly held on to that salvation, or to that uh, to that gospel, it would be the power of God today in my life unto salvation that I could fully engage in, those, in, in the community the way I'm called to, in the covenant with God, that I would be able to live in the deep, rich nature that God has for me, and I would be bursting out with the fruits of the Spirit. And what he's saying is it's very easy to drift away from that. And the way we drift away is when we lose sight of just how powerful this gospel is. Just how amazing this Jesus is. Just how much our dependence on him can change things. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, in other words, the prophecies of the, of the Old Testament proved reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, God always punished the sin. Then this, verse 3, listen very carefully, please. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. How should we escape? Now, I don't think that means God's trying to wring our neck, you know? 
God has all the best intentions for us. He doesn't want us to fail. He wants us to thrive. He, his son, he came in the form of his son to die on our behalf. He'll do anything to turn us. But what he's saying is, he can't do anything else for us. He already did it all. He did the entire thing for us. He sent his own son. He revealed the nature. He showed us how to live in it. He's the radiance. He's the, he's the beauty. And he made the salvation. And he sat down at the right hand where he intercedes on our behalf. He revealed himself. He gave himself to us to relate to. He can't do anything else. If we will not fully engage that thing, if we won't take full advantage of that salvation, if we won't hold on to that, then when those who didn't heed the words of the prophets found themselves in a difficult spot, how do you think we're going to find ourselves when he's given us everything we need, but instead of meditating on him and engaging in him and living with him, we kind of drift and go our own way and still have the knowledge and the name and the, and the discussion of it, but it's not who we are dependent on him. How shall we escape? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. In other words, he's like, this isn't just a story. This happened, and God exploded onto the scene, and he showed us. This is it, the grand fulfillment. But now, I have to meditate on the reality of the gospel. I have to entrench in the presence of God. I have to receive that salvation again and again, not in the sense of, you know, I'm not talking about, I get saved and then I'm not saved and I'm going to eternity. I'm not, I'm not even talking about any of that. I'm just saying that this relationship with God that's available to me today, I need the salvation of God, the efforts of Jesus, the words of Jesus to guide me into the engagement with him today. And if my life will be covenantally given to him, then today I can again experience the joy of salvation. Listen, this is what it's like. This gospel, it's an awesome thing. I read this story about this guy who, um, he was really struggling with his faith. He was like one of those people who, um, you know, had initially had the fire, but the fire was kind of missing. And he was just kind of like hanging his head like, I don't know, this isn't working anymore. And I feel like it's not working and I'm kind of struggling. And it was a real cool story because he goes to this church and at the church, they were preaching on Ephesians. And the pastor was talking about Christ as the head of the body and that we being risen in Christ are seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And the guy's sitting in the back and according to the story, he jumps up in the middle of the sermon and he says, how can a guy drown when his head's above water? And he walks out. In other words, Jesus is the head of the body and I'm just part of the body and he's already seated at the right hand of the throne of God and I'm sitting here pretending like I'm underwater and drowning because I can't feel life instead of believing that I am already resurrected and in the presence of God. That's an act of faith, not an act of work. And what I need to do, what I do need to work at is believing and trusting the truth that's already been revealed and it takes effort to hold on to that, to not neglect that gospel, but to believe instead of my circumstances down here in the water, to believe in the reality that the head is seated, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and that life and vitality are mine, and I'm a part of that. We can read the romance novels, 
where we can engage in a covenantal relationship with someone. And a romance novel may turn someone to a place where they feel good for a second about a story that kind of sounds fun. But to engage in a relationship covenantally takes work. It takes hard work. But that hard work is the joy. It's the joy. And this whole season here of Lent, this 40 days of consecration that we as a church are, are, are being called to, this time is not a time to sacrifice on behalf of God or to show ourselves approved. That's not what this is about. What this is about is, is that we believe in the gospel. And we believe that we can have a deep, rich, abiding relationship with Jesus and that we want to get to the place where we're not foggy, where we're not distracted by the other things, where we step back and say we want to meditate more intensely on the gospel that's been given to us so that our hearts and our minds can more fully embrace the presence of God. This is not to show anything or to work anything. This is simply to say it has been done. It is finished. The presence of God has been revealed and God is here with us. And I am going to set aside this time and intentionally engage on seeing nothing but Christ, Him crucified, Him resurrected, Him present in me and among us. And I am just going to be all about enjoying that salvation and being in, being in with him. So I want to challenge us in this consecration when it comes to teachings, when it comes to quiet times, when it comes to praise times, when it comes to times of thanksgiving, when it comes to music, when it comes to all of this stuff, there's a moment for us to be completely obsessed with Jesus obsessed with him, completely in love with him. But it does take work to nurture the relationship. We can't make the relationship happen, but once we've been given the relationship, it's very important that we don't neglect it. We don't neglect it. And so that's what we want to do through these 40 days. Engage, engage the gospel. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the nature, the nature being revealed the radiance of the glory. God, we thank you that there is a shining light that reveals to us who you are and who we are, who we're called to be at least. We thank you that there's an imprint, an impression made that's in the story of the Gospels that says this is what it looks like, this is who God is. And that that can be a guide for the presence of that God who lives in us and among us and whom we lose ourselves inside of. We thank you for all that you've written and all that you've shown us. We thank you for the explanation that it brings, but much more than all of that, we thank you for your presence with us, where you are not just described, but you are inhabited, (laughs) you are engaged. And we ask, Jesus, that we would not treat you like a story, that, Jesus, we would not treat you like a religion, but, Jesus, we would engage you as our God as our leader, as our Messiah, our Savior. Save us again today, please. In the name of Jesus.